the date is uh, December 18, 1994. I want to tell you about Lobdell's Farm. Before World War II, uh, some areas of Stratford were uh, still unbuilt and there were many little truck farms. Uh, gradually, uh, after the war, as the housing was developed, these truck farms all disappeared. But one of the last of them, and very close to Paradise Green, was Lobdell's Farm. Uh, William Irving Lobdell, Ikey, uh, he was known as, uh, was born in about 1855 and died about 1954 at uh, age 99. In 1906, he bought from one of the Curtises uh, 15 acres of uh, land uh, on Huntington Road at uh, where uh, Torrey Hill itself is. <clears throat> the house number was uh, number 317 Huntington Road, and it's still there. I want to describe the property, the operation of the farm, and the Lobdells themselves. The when I knew Ike in the uh, 1920s and 1930s, he was already uh, pushing 80 or uh, beyond that, and he was still a uh, physically a, a very strong and healthy man. <clears throat> he, uh, in appearance, uh, he had a white mustache and, and uh, white hair. He usually wore uh, overalls. Uh, I remember him uh, coming along in these old brown overalls uh, whose uh, buckle on the uh, straps would be stamped either President Police or Oshkosh Bagosh. Uh, with that, uh, high shoes, high-laced shoes uh, for use in the fields or oftentimes uh, uh, boots. The welly is not a new idea because his uh, boots were very, very similar to the modern uh, Wellington. I remember him sitting uh, up on his back porch on an old park bench, taking off those shoes in order to enter the house. Uh, each noon, uh, Letty would uh, call him back in for lunch, and sometimes he would be up the top of the hill near our house on what is now Shepherd Street, uh, a good, well over a thousand feet away from the barn, and you could hear Letty shouting for him. Uh, he would uh, go down, go in, have his lunch, rest a bit uh, after lunch, and then go back into the fields. But always he took off his shoes or his boots before entering the house. Uh, that was a uh, command. Letty herself was a, uh, a wonderful person when you got to know her. Uh, but she was very strict and stern, and she was usually bawling somebody out, justifiably so. Uh, she often would <coughs> rant at him, and he would just sit there and chuckle. Never really answered her, but uh, seemed to enjoy having her uh, cackle at him. It was the second marriage for uh, both of them. His first, first wife had died many, many years ago. And uh, Letty uh, was a, a widow who lived across the street on uh, Huntington Road, uh, Bennett was her name, until uh, they were married. 
Letty stands for Celeste. In about 1947, uh, they sold the farm to uh, Chief Nichols, who in turn uh, sold it to McNeil and Blamey, and it's the first place that McNeil and Blamey put up large quantities of their standard house. Uh, he went to uh, stay at Sunnyside, which was the old Brewster house and is now at Zima's funeral home until he died. Uh, later, uh, she uh, went to uh, live in an apartment uh, at uh, Stanley Johnson's place on Main Street, and the Johnsons were absolutely wonderful to her. She, too, ended up uh, passing away in the uh, Sunnyside uh, rest home. The farm on Huntington Road stretched from uh, at uh, the bottom of the uh, hill <coughs> where it uh, had been uh, contiguous to Strasburger's property uh, up to Mount Pleasant, which at that time was known as the Lane or Lobdell's Lane. The, uh, and, and it really was a lane. It was uh, unpaved and uh, the trees met overhead so that it was uh, sh quite shady, very little sunlight penetrated uh, this lane. The lower part, uh, up past the log cabin, was uh, adjacent to and, and just uh, formed the, the north edge of uh, Lobdell's uh, property, just to the south of the uh, lane. There, there would be a stone wall and uh, the apple orchard and pasture were located. The uh, lane did a turn beyond the log cabin where it uh, crossed the brook and continued uh, due west uh, to where it met what is presently uh, Freeman Avenue. So all of the present Mount Pleasant Avenue uh, was there as lane. It was quite impassable up beyond Denton's house uh, where Mr. Denton and his housekeeper lived. Uh, Letty uh, always referred to uh, Mr. Denton's woman as his housekeeper, not as his girlfriend or anything of that sort. And I still remember Denton and his housekeeper walking up the road where they had, after they'd uh, been down to one of the local taverns and staggering a little bit as they went back to Denton's house. Between Denton's and uh, the little uh, bungalow uh, that was Dolly Martin's house, it was totally impassable in the 1930s because nobody used it. But then west of, of that again to get to the Martin house, uh, you could uh, drive a vehicle uh, in from uh, Nichols, at Nichols Avenue. The uh, front of Lobdell's property on Huntington Road also had a stone wall that led down to the uh, uh, south end of it. And then uh, along the south side, uh, a uh, barbed wire fence took you practically all the way to the brook. Uh, it went from uh, east on Huntington Road to uh, its west end, which was very close to the brook, uh, and uh, divided Lobdell's property from the Strasburger property that was later divided up and uh, on which uh, homes were built by Ulrich Drittenbass, and the road, of course, was named Ulrich Road. The uh, 
where that fence ended, uh, there was a little jog in the pasture, and then a stone wall proceeded north and started up the hill. Uh, within a uh, few feet, uh, that stone wall met another one that extended further south and uh, uh, enclosed uh, the southwestern lot on the Lobdell property. As I said, it was 15 acres uh, all in all, and uh, within that 15 acres were five planting fields and the uh, pasture uh, with an orchard and a brook and an upper meadow. The uh, stone wall that I mentioned uh, uh, running north-south at the east end of the uh, southwest lot ran down to Tom Dew's property and uh, then uh, another stone wall took off toward what is now Shepherd Street uh, to the rear of the properties on Shepherd Street. Barbed wire fence took over behind number 34 and number 54 and number 74 Shepherd Street. By the way, uh, that was called North Park Street until about uh, 1932. Uh, as, as I say, uh, a fence took over behind the properties of Waits and Mrs. Hawley and the Knapps. Uh, beyond the Knapps property, uh, on, on the north edge of their property, a barbed wire uh, fence uh, uh, ran the 114 feet to uh, Shepherd Street Road itself, and then the fence uh, ran uh, north along Shepherd Street up to its junction with uh, Monroe Street. Uh, the uh, Another barbed wire fence ran along Monroe Street uh, to the Martin House that uh, stood on Monroe Street. Uh, from the rear of that house, uh, with uh, one jog, a barbed wire fence uh, led north, then west, then north again to the point where it intersected the stone wall that was on the lane around Mount Pleasant Avenue. Thus the whole thing was enclosed. Of the fields, the uh, uh, one closest to the house, uh, stretching from Huntington Road to, uh, to the brook, uh, or almost to the brook, uh, was called the Flats, and it was rather sim it was stoneless, and it was uh, rather similar to the flats that the Ryans and Callahans uh, had down in Lordship. Awfully good for uh, planting and for plowing, because uh, there were no stones in it to speak of, and, and it was in fact flat and rather moist in the summertime. The Beyond the uh, uh, pasture and the brook, off to the west of that, and stretching up to Shepherd Street, uh, was a hillside uh, field. Uh, that field uh, was smaller than the uh, flats, but uh, was was quite useful for uh, things that uh, could be could use a little drier soil. Potatoes, for example, were growable there, and in that uh, lot, uh, Mr. Lobdell would grow corn in the upper part of it usually, and he would uh, sometimes uh, put his tomatoes in there and uh, other vegetables of that sort. Uh, beans often went in uh, that lot. It was probably the lot he used more than anything else other than the uh, flats because it was second closest to the uh, house. Across the middle of that lot was his asparagus patch. 
the uh, southwest lot that I mentioned to the south of that was divided from the one I've just described uh, by another stone wall and in that southwest lot also potatoes, corn, uh, vegetables in, in general uh, were grown. The uh, uh, fence, the, the uh, stone wall itself that divided those two lots on its south side uh, of course was rather warm and sunny and that is where in one spot the rhubarb was planted and in another uh, location the raspberry patch uh, existed. About halfway up the lane from the uh, uh, barn uh, to the uh, western edge of uh, the property was what I always called the round field. Its only access was from a break in the stone wall uh, of uh, the lane or Mount Pleasant Avenue. Uh, it was surrounded on the uh, east, south, and west sides by a uh, fence and on all three of these sides the pasture was on the other side of the fence so the purpose of the barbed wire fence was to keep the cows out. The round field was uh, used for corn and uh, uh, things like that. Further west along Monroe Street was what I might call the Monroe Street field. It was at the top of the hill and uh, its uh, one side was on Monroe Street. Uh, the other side was fairly close to a brook, uh, the other side of which was the uh, meadow. The lot, the Monroe Street lot, was because it was uh, top of the hill and it was dry and pebbly, was the kind of place where Mr. Lobdell planted his cabbages and his turnips and uh, uh, vegetables like that that could take a little bit of stoniness and didn't uh, require an overly great amount of moisture. So we've described the five planting fields, uh, a, an, an expanse of uh, land that connected all of these fields running from the barn down on the corner of Huntington Road and uh, Mount Pleasant uh, all the way to the western edge of the uh, property which was halfway up on Rose Street and touching each and every one of the uh, fields that we uh, talked about uh, was the pasture. Usually uh, uh, a pasture would be located where you couldn't uh, do much else with the field and uh, the pasture ran first of all through the uh, apple orchard behind the barn there was an ancient apple orchard uh, uh, running along uh, Mount Pleasant fairly far west uh, from the uh, barn uh, not quite to the brook the, the apple trees were uh, bound or their trunks were bound in uh, uh, chicken wire so that the cows wouldn't chew away on the uh, uh, trunk uh, and the uh, best apples, of course, were always the ones that had landed in what the cows had done. The ex extension beyond there it was just beyond this point that the uh, brook ran through the property. And it ran, it's, it uh, came from uh, a uh, maple swamp uh, to the north and uh, ran down amongst huge rocks, uh, 10 or 12 foot rocks, and down waterfalls uh, in the uh, uh, foresty uh, uh, tree-laden uh, area here to a 
bridge or culvert uh, that the lane ran over. Uh, south of that, the, uh, it came through this uh, sunny and sparkling pasture. The uh, brook then uh, left the property at its, along its south edge, passed under a like a 30-foot uh, wooden bridge, which uh, was built in expectations that uh, the road that ultimately became uh, Ulrich Road would be created there. Actually, when uh, Ulrich Road was uh, created, the whole brook was culverted by uh, that time. But it uh, ended up uh, leaving the property uh, fairly close to where that bridge that crossed Ulrich Road was. <coughs> Along the brook, uh, in the uh, northern part of it, uh, was uh, a bit of marsh and, and another well. Uh, this uh, well uh, was uh, set up so that in, in the midsummer, when things had pretty much dried up, there would still be places that you could get water for the fields if you're doing any uh, planting in the uh, midsummer or water for the uh, cows. There was a tub next to it, and uh, we would have to go down there occasionally and, and bucket out the uh, water and uh, put it in the tub for the cows in the middle of the summer. My brother Ray had the task of cleaning out that well one time, and it was done by uh, putting a ladder down it and going down and filling buckets with mud and then having Mr. Lobdell, who was up at the top, uh, hoist them all out. Ray said it wasn't the best job that he was ever given to, to do there. Not very far beyond where that well was, not very far south of it, uh, was a, a little bridge crossing the middle of the pasture and leading to the far fields. A, a, that is a lane or a roadway uh, leading to the far fields uh, uh, from that bridge. South of that and to the south border of the property, uh, <coughs> it was a little more marshy. And in the uh, early summer, the uh, blue flag and the uh, cowslips were absolutely fabulous. Uh, a, a little pool that had been uh, created right at that uh, uh, bridge uh, was also useful for uh, <coughs> bucketing water up into uh, barrels and then taking it up to the fields. And that's where Jimmy the bullfrog lived. Jimmy was just about the biggest green frog I've ever seen, and he was there year after year after year after year. From the uh, uh, brook, uh, the pasture extended west between the hillside field that I had mentioned and the uh, round field. It ran up along a smaller brook where the rocks had never been cleared out and the area was, was uh, too moist to use for anything other than pasture, but it made great pasture. The uh, pasture then uh, narrowed down <coughs> and turned north and entered the uh, southeast corner of the meadow that I was describing that uh, stood up at that point. It was a very large uh, meadow, and that's where uh, our haying was done when it was done on a property. Uh, the old man would uh, often buy hay from someone else. That is, he'd buy haying rights from someone else. But on his own property, uh, that field was the, the haying field for the property. Down at the house was the farmyard. There, aside from the house, he had the barn, a two-story barn with a uh, hayloft above the uh, main floor, and 
a uh, cow shed uh, behind it. Uh, within the uh, cow shed also were two uh, stalls for the horses, so that as you left the main part of the barn and hopped down to the area where the uh, uh, two enclosed horse stalls were, uh, you went through a corridor and then found yourself in the cow shed. There were five stalls there for cows. The uh, second largest building in, uh, was what he called the shop. It was really another smaller barn, two stories, although <coughs> the outside stairs that led to the second st uh, story had long since deteriorated and were absolutely impossible to use. If you did want to uh, go up into the upper part of the uh, shop, up into the loft of the shop, uh, what you did was go through a uh, hole in uh, the uh, shop building itself. Uh, half of the shop building had an open front and that's where the truck and the wagon were kept. Uh, the other half uh, was the shop itself and the rear part of that was uh, caged in for chickens. The uh, loft in that was marvelous for a kid to explore because it had all sorts of things that had not been used for ages. There was, for example, uh, an ancient sleigh up there uh, that had probably not been in use for uh, 20 or 30 years, even when I saw it in the early 1930s. South of the shop was a small mansard roof, uh, or I should say monitor roof uh, garage, <clears throat> of the type that was built earliest for cars. And in that, in the early days, uh, Mrs. Lobdell kept her, uh, I think it was a 1923 Ford Coupe. Uh, after she stopped driving, <clears throat> the concrete floor of the garage was a very useful place for drying out onions or uh, drying out uh, seeds. He uh, kept seeds from his own vegetables. When he found himself with uh, good vegetables, instead of uh, buying from uh, Sears Roebuck or from one of the local uh, seed outfits, uh, he would uh, use his own seed and often made out very well that way uh, with uh, vegetables that were better than those of other people. The barnyard also contained the chicken coop that ran uh, uh, the, uh, well I say chicken coop, the chicken run. Uh, because the chickens uh, lived below the uh, main floor of the uh, big barn and the chicken run uh, ran between the barn and the shop and then out toward the uh, pasture and the flats. In the middle of that uh, was the uh, uh, little outhouse which I never used because it uh, canted at about a 20 degree angle I would say and looked to me as, as though it would collapse on you if you went into it. The chickens themselves uh, were uh, fed conventional chicken scratch, but they also had an opportunity to uh, uh, eat old vegetables, things of that sort were tossed into the uh, chicken yard for them. So they got a pretty varied diet. In front of the shop uh, was a tub, and in the wintertime, uh, when the uh, celery was taken out of the trenches, it had been stored in uh, trenches. Uh, the celery then, by the way, was uh, all white bleached celery. The so-called Pascal green, green celery that didn't require bleaching didn't exist. I think the white celery had a wonderful, wonderful flavor. But it was a uh, awful task in the uh, late fall or winter time when you're out there in the dead cold and you're washing off this uh, uh, celery uh, in the tub 
and uh, then putting a red elastic band around it for uh, appearance sake and trimming the roots off of it. Uh, it didn't take very long for your hands to get absolutely ice cold. Also in the uh, uh, barnyard, up just behind the uh, fence for the house's backyard was one of the most marvelous butternut trees I've ever seen. It was huge and the butternuts, although just about impossible to crack, were the most tasty of uh, nuts. Underneath the butternut tree the grindstone stood. It was a uh, foot treadle operated machine. It had once had two treadles but uh, <coughs> one of the treadles had long since disappeared and so that at this point uh, the thing speeded up and, and uh, slowed down uh, as you uh, pumped the remaining treadle. The result was the uh, grindstone had turned quite elliptical and was just about totally out of round. To the south of the house and uh, next to the uh, uh, barnyard uh, was the uh, was uh, a spot where all the hotbeds were and there were four or perhaps at one point as many as six of these hotbeds each of them 30 40 50 feet long and old glass frames were put over them to create a hotbed uh, he would dig down about a foot and a half and uh, fill uh, six to ten inches of this with uh, uh, new horse manure uh, that was uh, still uh, uh, acting, that was, that was still uh, uh, quite warm. He would cover this with uh, about six inches of uh, soil and plant the seeds in that. The uh, result was that uh, without any artificial heat the uh, plants uh, grew up uh, marvelously quickly and, and they looked absolutely great too of course because they reached down to this, these marvelous nutrients. As the <coughs> uh, beds were first planted in February or March, uh, they had to be covered every night and sometimes during the daytime with a, a bunch of, of uh, burlap blankets that he had there. Later in the season it uh, was uh, proper to uh, ventilate by uh, pulling up a corner of uh, each of these windows. Although they were made of glass, they were still flexible enough so that you could put a wedge under one corner and get a little bit of ventilation inside them. My first job on Lobdell's farm, believe it or not, was at age five. Uh, Ray, who was ten years older than I, had been uh, working for Mr. Lobdell. He took me down there one day and uh, Pa had died just a year ago, and I think the old man felt sorry for me. Anyhow, I was given the job of uh, dropping lettuce. Now, uh, in uh, planting lettuce, you took it out of the hotbed, uh, got a lot of mud on its uh, roots, and uh, the uh, fellows, the planters, uh, went along on their knees, which were uh, uh, covered in burlap bags tied around the uh, knees, and uh, with a dibble in one hand, uh, they would uh, put the lettuce plants in a foot apart. The rows were a foot apart, the plants were a foot apart. But to speed things up for them so that they didn't have to take the lettuce plants out of the uh, box, a, a dropper was used. And the dropper was, as I say, when I was five years old, was me. And uh, your task was to uh, put a lettuce plant at each of the marked intersection points that had been done with a uh, something that looked like a huge rake uh, before the uh, process of planting started. Uh, I got a nickel an hour for that.
My earliest memories uh, of the animals on the uh, farm, uh, I remember Blackie the horse. Uh, Blackie was a very uh, uh, large horse, but uh, died when I was just a little kid, and the last horse that Mr. Lobdell had was Chubby. Chubby was uh, all white and was, just a, as the name implied, not a large horse, but a pretty powerful animal. Uh, there were originally five cows, then that came down to three, and then finally he got rid of the cows altogether. Mr. Wilcoxon would uh, buy the milk uh, from uh, Lobdell, and of course Wilcoxon, uh, this is Walter Wilcoxon, who lived down on uh, the farms at the intersection of Wilcoxon Avenue and Main Street. And Wilcoxon had his own uh, animals that uh, he would pasture sometimes on Paradise Green, sometimes uh, up Huntington Road, sometimes uh, in his own lots uh, down to the east. Wilcoxon delivered milk in bottles to uh, people all through Stratford. He had a uh, horse and, and uh, wagon to do this with, or a horse and carriage. Uh, I guess it was a wagon with a, uh, a uh, sunshade uh, over the driver's seat. But part of his route uh, as, uh, was past Lobdell's barn uh, up the uh, lane or Mount Pleasant uh, and then down uh, near the brook uh, he would open the gate, come into the pasture, uh, cross the bridge that I talked about and then uh, follow uh, a lane that ran up on the north side of the uh, hillside uh, field and ended up at the intersection of uh, Shepherd Street and Monroe Street where uh, Shepherd at that time ended there and Monroe went west. But uh, on a sunny morning in uh, June, uh, we can still remember hearing Mr. Wilcoxon as he uh, went up this lane, which was not steep, but it was a hill, uh, singing hymns that you could hear all the way across the fields. When the horse would slow down or, or uh, uh, balk or uh, stop on this hillside, uh, he would curse out at the horse until the animal got going again and then resume hymn singing. Uh, when Wilcoxon sold the route to uh, Larry Spalmer, uh, the uh, hymns were replaced by a smell of a, a cigar wafting across the fields. Mr. Spalmer always had a cigar in his mouth. Not always lit, but he always had a cigar in his mouth. I was talking about the animals and got uh, diverted a bit. Uh, I did. I had mentioned the chickens and cows, and uh, they also had. Uh, Mrs. Lobdell had something like 14 cats with all that milk available, of course, it, it wasn't difficult to keep large quantities of cats. And with the grain that was around uh, all over the place, it was necessary to keep down the rats and mice with something like that. The uh, cows uh, had to be milked every day. Uh, they were put out in the pasture in the summertime and in the fall uh, and uh, fed uh, uh, corn stalks and things of that sort in the wintertime, but uh, they would, they themselves would uh, come back to the barn and I think uh, they told time by the sun uh, because uh, as the uh, days shortened uh, they would arrive back at the barn earlier 
and you would hear them lowing at uh, uh, five o'clock or, or so before the sun had gone on because they knew that when they went back into the uh, barn they'd be fed something good and milked and apparently they enjoyed that. I remember one time we had to take a cow up to be served. Uh, on a farm uh, being served had another meaning and uh, the nearest bull was about a mile and a half up the street. The uh, Mr. Lobdell and uh, Steve Moyer would uh, ride in the wagon. They tied the cow on behind the wagon, but I had to walk behind it with a switch uh, to make sure that it uh, followed up and, and uh, they got there in time. The uh, people who had the bull, I don't remember what family it was now, but they were way up Huntington Road near uh, Buck Swamp. And the uh, uh, procedure was to uh, tie the uh, uh, cow uh, with her head uh, between the uh, forked branches of an old apple tree out in the middle of their pasture and then bring the bull out. The uh, cow on the way back down was much more docile and I got to ride in the wagon. I didn't have to uh, force the cow to keep walking home. I remember one time uh, when a cow calved out in the meadow. Uh, <coughs> there, were, there were new calves every year but I do remember that uh, this meadow, which was in the farthest property from the uh, barn, a uh, cow uh, dropped a calf out there one afternoon, and the uh, old man had to uh, go up there with a wheelbarrow, brought the uh, calf back to the barn uh, in a wheelbarrow with its mother following it and bellowing all the way. Chubby, of course, was a person unto himself. Uh, he was a uh, good horse, a, a strong horse, uh, but very, very fond of, of eating. And uh, one of the uh, ways in which I made money uh, was to uh, uh, hold his head up when uh, we were cultivating. <clears throat> if uh, Mr. Lobdo were plowing or cultivating or, or something like that, uh, he would have me lead the horse so that the horse couldn't turn around and, and uh, nip the delicious young uh, corn shocks on the way because he'd be quite likely to do that kind of thing. There was a muzzle you could put over his mouth and, and that was used sometimes too uh, that uh, uh, kept him from eating up the, the uh, profits. I learned to harness the horse. Uh, the uh, gear was uh, pretty standard. Uh, you'd put the collar on first. Uh, you, you would then uh, uh, bring all the rest of the harness up uh, over the horse uh, and uh, tighten the hame, buckle the hames over the uh, collar. Uh, you uh, had to buckle the belly buckle and then you were ready to uh, back the horse uh, into the uh, uh, shafts and uh, hook up the traces to the whiffle tree. Uh, the uh, whiffle tree is, is the bar uh, on the uh, wagon rig or plow rig or, or the rig of any implement. The whiffle tree is, is, is the uh, device that uh, takes the load from the uh, uh, harness uh, of the horse and, and draws along the uh, implement. We had uh, a great many horse-drawn implements, actually. There were the wagons. There were two wagons. Uh, there was a uh, dump cart. Uh, 
the dump cart it, itself was used for uh, bringing manure out uh, to spread on the fields, and uh, that was a tough job because it it, uh, it was just heavy work loading up the uh, cart, and it was heavy work uh, standing on top of the cart and, and slinging the stuff out, spreading it around the uh, uh, fields. The uh, plow, of course, was uh, uh, one of the implements it used, and uh, at this time, uh, one of the last horse-drawn uh, plows, uh, it had uh, three steel parts. The uh, beam and the handle were both made of wood, uh, but the steel parts uh, were the moldboard, the land side, uh, and the point. The point itself was replaced fairly often. You sent to Sears Roebuck for these. Uh, the uh, steel moldboard had to be kept perfectly uh, clean and uh, was oiled at the end of each uh, plowing to make sure that it didn't rust up. Uh, the land side, the other side, was was the side that, that uh, kept the furrow straight so that you can, or kept the furrow clean so that you could then dump the next furrow into it. You uh, plowed in a uh, clockwise direction, of course, because the moldboard itself flipped the uh, earth from the furrow off to the right. The next step after plowing was harrowing, and we had two kinds of horse-drawn harrows. Uh, one was the disc harrow, where these wheels rotated and chopped up the earth. You, you really needed the disc harrow uh, in places like the flats, where the earth was moist and chunky. Was moist and chunky. Uh, the other harrow had a series of uh, tines and was uh, used for breaking up drier earth. Uh, after harrowing, if you really wanted to uh, flatten the uh, surface uh, before you uh, did your planting, you brought in the stone boat. That uh, was a device used in the wintertime, and it was uh, simply a, a, a flat uh, area or a, or a flat board that you hauled, you stood on top of, and had the horse uh, haul across the field in, in order to level things. Uh, in the winter time and off-season when you had time, if you're taking stones out of the field and putting them in the stone walls, why they were put aboard the stone boat and, and uh, brought to wherever they were going to be used. Once the crops were planted, that was only the beginning of it because there was an awful lot of uh, weeding and hoeing and harrowing and uh, taking the uh, the, the uh, suckers out of the uh, corn plants as well as uh, squashing bean beetles in your hands and doing whatever was necessary to get rid of, of, uh, of uh, insects. Uh, other uh, varmints that you had to contend with were woodchucks who were just as fond of corn stalks as Chubby was. I remember one time I was given the commission of catching woodchucks and what you did was uh, trap them and you were paid 25 cents for each one which Mr. Lobdell then uh, skinned and fed to the cats uh, but the purpose in paying you the quarter was so that there would be fewer woodchucks to uh, run rampant through the uh, vegetables. I was not very good at uh, this kind of thing uh, and I remember distinctly the time that in the trap I had set the trap in the what I thought was a chuck hole and turned out to be a skunk hole. Well, 
I didn't know what to do with the uh, skunk, so I stood off about uh, 10 feet and uh, poked with a long stick to see if he was uh, alive and active. Uh, he was. The uh, squirt of a the skunk has something like a 12-foot throw, I guess, and I, as I say, I was 10 feet away. And I'll tell you this, if he hits you in the eye, you will never smell it, because the sting is so abominably bad. It's butyl mercaptan, and it's, a, it's, it's an irritant, as, as well as one of the most horrible smells in the world. I don't think the skunk likes the smell either. But uh, uh, if you're hit in the eye uh, by it, uh, you, you spend hours just washing it out before you can see again. It's, it's a terrible experience. And that's what happened to me. So I got hold of Steve Moyer, who was a little bit older than uh, I, and had a hell of a lot more skills and common sense. Uh, Steve went up to the uh, uh, skunk trap holding a burlap bag in front of him, flipped the bag over the skunk, released the track, trap, and the skunk walked away. The summer harvest time was a time when probably the, the least unpleasant or most pleasant uh, uh, parts of uh, farming occurred. Picking wasn't bad. Uh, picking corn, uh, Mr. Lobdell would uh, pick the corn and I would uh, hold the uh, uh, bag. It was usually a, a burlap bag and you put a hundred in a bag. It was fairly heavy, uh, I thought, uh, but uh, as an 80-year-old man, he would sling these bags over his shoulder and think nothing of it. If uh, the corn uh, ears were short, he wouldn't pick them. Uh, he'd leave them. Nubbins, he called them. And uh, nubbins were a fair game for us. Uh, it was the middle of the Depression. Uh, pa had died. Uh, to help feed us, Mother did an awful lot of uh, canning of whatever was available, and we had some of our own vegetables. But having Mr. Lobdell say, well, uh, go pick all the nubbins, uh, gave you, uh, over a period of a couple of weeks, uh, enough uh, corn so that she could can all the corn we needed for the winter. Uh, this was also true of things like tomatoes. He had a tomato called Early Anna that allowed him to get, uh, I think it was $2.50 per half bushel uh, at the beginning of the season because he had tomatoes two, three weeks before anybody else. And the early Anna was a pretty good uh, tomato. When the season went on and other people's tomatoes came in, the price of a basket of tomatoes came down to something like 25 cents. At that point, he'd just stop picking and let them rot, and he'd tell us that we could have the tomatoes. So uh, Ma would can one to 200 quarts of tomatoes every summer uh, using what Mr. Lobdell had uh, given us. Uh, other uh, summer vegetables were uh, beans and cabbage, uh, and cauliflower was a, a later summer vegetable. Uh, you uh, tied up the uh, cauliflower leaves around the uh, uh, blossom itself uh, so as to uh, bleach it. Some vegetables that we have today uh, weren't available then. Uh, their uh, broccoli was unheard of it. It really hadn't uh, permeated the United States. And uh, uh, zucchini, which he called Italian squash, 
uh, had just come in and he did plant a little of, of that because Vic Musanti liked uh, to sell that down in his uh, market, his vegetable market. Among the uh, varmints in the area were also rabbits. Rabbits, however, didn't eat much, and you'd see them hopping along the uh, 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 through the fields. And uh, in midsummer, uh, there'd be a mother skunk with a couple little skunks. There was one in particular who used to follow uh, Mr. Lobdell when he was harvesting corn, and she'd have uh, two or three babies uh, crawling all over uh, her back and, and uh, each other as she followed him. He would drop a, uh, a uh, wormy ear of corn, and the skunk and her children would eat that and would catch up to him ten minutes later to get another one. Uh, there were very few deer at uh, this time. Uh, deer, the deer population in the, in the Stratford part of the state was very low. Once in a very great while we would uh, see a deer off in the fields, but not very often at all. As to the rabbits, our little beagles would go out hunting by themselves, and you could hear them baying and chasing the rabbits all over the fields. I don't think they ever caught one, but uh, uh, Jackie and uh, Boomer and Pete, uh, the beagles that we had, uh, were quite active in teaching themselves how to how to hunt rabbits during the summer. A little later in the season, uh, the uh, harvesting became a bit more work. Digging potatoes was not an easy job. What you did was to uh, run the plow uh, down the uh, uh, row of potatoes and. and you ended up with all these uh, potatoes uh, hidden in the uh, in this fresh dirt alongside of uh, the furrow that you had dug. Then you had to find them and, and uh, dig them out with a potato fork. So it meant leaning over and going the whole length of the fields to find the uh, potatoes. I wasn't very good at it and I got balled out a couple times for, for uh, sticking the potatoes with the uh, potato fork. They weren't very saleable when you did much of that. It took me a while to learn. With potatoes also, uh, in those days, the small potatoes weren't used for uh, anything. They're a, delica they're a delicacy now, uh, but the small potatoes were culls, and, and those were things that, that we could use uh, ourselves. As the season went on, uh, we found ourselves uh, t taking in the root vegetables. Uh, turnips were among the last, and they were uh, usually uh, taken up after there had been a frost. Uh, a frost takes a bit of the bitter bitterness out of a turnip, and uh, he would wait until there had been a frost before he did that. They were then stored in trenches, too. Uh, cabbages were cut all season, but uh, at the end of the season, uh, the cabbages were pulled. Cabbages were uh, pulled out by the roots and turned upside down. They too went in, into trenches and were available for half the winter uh, to be taken and sold to the stores. Haying was another event that uh, uh, took place uh, starting uh, in the late summer and going through uh, all of early autumn. Uh, haying was fun because of the, the uh, smell of the hay, but it was also a lot of work and it, it did build muscles. The uh, first task in, in haying was the mowing. Uh, we had a horse-drawn uh, mowing machine, and uh, once again I was, I was taught how to use that, but uh, 
wasn't uh, afraid of it, and I was absolutely terrified of it. It had a uh, uh, cast iron formed uh, saddle uh, that you sat in, and uh, then you uh, uh, your hands uh, held the reins, which also went around you so that if you, so that you wouldn't lose them. Your t uh, major task in haying was steering to make sure that uh, Chubby uh, went down the uh, right path adjacent to uh, the uh, uh, path that you had uh, just mowed, and uh, making sure that you didn't hear any uh, hit any rocks in the uh, meadow. There were still many rocks that hadn't been taken out, and it was hell to uh, run the sickle bar into uh, a rock. Uh, if you did that, it, it kind of threw your seat up and over and uh, threw you forward either into the horse or into the uh, uh, bar itself. I never had the experience of hurting myself on it, but I was always terrified that I would. The, the task after uh, cutting the uh, hay was to rake it up, and our, we had a uh, horse-drawn hay rake. Uh, this was somewhat more fun than the uh, uh, mowing machine itself. It took less skill anyhow than the mowing machine. Uh, it too was set up so that uh, your feet worked uh, pedals that, that uh, drew the uh, uh, tines of the hay rake up off the uh, ground, which was a little bit easier than, than uh, having, having to uh, flip the sickle bar up with your feet. After raking the uh, uh, hay up, uh, you tetted it out there for uh, several days. Uh, after about uh, two days, you, you turned it over to make sure that it uh, uh, dried properly. And you might have to turn it over a second time. And then uh, a couple days later, uh, you would come up with a, a rig on the uh, uh, wagon that allowed, that converted it really into a hay wagon and uh, loaded that up and took it down to the barn. It was awfully hot uh, working up uh, inside the loft. Uh, Mr. Lobdell would stand on the uh, wagon and toss the hay up through uh, an opening in the uh, hay loft. And uh, you would have to pick up the hay that was in that opening and uh, flip it up uh, to the top of, of the uh, pile that you were making in the loft. It was totally dark in there, and the temperature was about 110 degrees. Uh, maybe more, and uh, the uh, of, of course the uh, air was full of dust, so that was a part of the job that you were you were thankful for when the whole thing was done. Sometime before the last frost, uh, the tomatoes were picked en masse. All the green tomatoes were put in the hotbeds on top of the burlap blankets that I uh, mentioned. And as the weeks went on, the and they turned red, uh, they were taken to the uh, stores and and uh, vended out. Winter was catch-up time. Uh, it was when you repaired uh, equipment that needed repairing, and uh, got ready for the spring. Uh, Lobdell together. Uh, with uh, some of the other uh, farmers, the Callahans and the Ryans, uh, 
in the uh, late 20s and early 30s would buy fertilizer by the freight car load and then uh, the uh, farmers would split up the cost of this. You kind of mixed your own. Uh, later on uh, he would buy these 100 pound bags of 5105. 5105 means 5% uh, 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 nitrates, 10% uh, phosphates, and 5% uh, potassium and this is essentially the mixture that uh, they always used but uh, in the earlier days they would buy those elements separately and mix things in themselves uh, mix bone ash in uh, whatever they needed for a particular crop uh, so that uh, they could they could get a little closer to exactly what they needed for a particular crop than by buying the standard 5105 the The winter task that uh, I used to find interesting was uh, repairing old equipment. He very seldom bought handles for uh, equipment whose handle had, had broken. Instead of that, he'd uh, whittle or make his own handles. I know our corn cutters all had uh, handles that were self-made, and many of the other pieces of equipment did the same thing. What you would do is uh, go out to uh, one of the nut trees, find a good piece of wood, cut it off the nut tree, bring it down. Sometimes he would do this ahead of time and then have it uh, drying in the barn. But in the barn, together with a uh, spoke shave uh, and or other uh, equipments of that sort, you would uh, form uh, your own handles for uh, most of the equipment that he had. You seldom made it. You seldom uh, bought that kind of thing. What he did buy uh, was usually uh, by a mail order from uh, Sears Roebuck. Sears in those days had just about as complete a catalog of uh, farm equipment and uh, farm products uh, that anybody in the world had and you didn't need to go anywhere other than Sears. I know uh, the, I, I hadn't mentioned the uh, uh, truck very much. I talked about the wagons, but his last truck was a 1923 T model Ford. You sat on top of the gas tank. There were no sides on the uh, uh, cab. I think there had been uh, canvas curtains at one time, but they had long disappeared. It was roofed over and it had uh, uh, a two-part windshield openable uh, in the front. And as I say, you sat on the gas tank. Uh, model T's were a three-pedal device. Uh, with uh, a brake pedal, a uh, forward uh, clutching uh, pedal where, which uh, uh, fed into a clutch plate and a uh, reverse clutching pedal which uh, fed to a, uh, a clutch drum. The uh, uh, truck could travel just about anywhere on the uh, farm. I know there were times when uh, he missed the bridge uh, with uh, one wheel and, and uh, went through the uh, well, forded the brook on one side and, and uh, uh, hit the bridge uh, uh, with the uh, other wheels on the other side. The <coughs> truck did not have electric starting, so it was hand cranked to start. One man could do this kind of thing. It wasn't easy, uh, but uh, you uh, uh, set up the levers uh, on the uh, steering shaft and uh, then uh, cranked it up and, and once it caught you came around quickly and, and uh, reset the uh, gas and the uh, spark levers and you were ready to go. 
for this reason, he didn't shut down the engine when he got down to uh, the markets, kept, kept it running, really, because it was easy that way. And there was one time at the Green when his five-year-old grandson, Teddy, who, whom he had left in the cab, uh, got the thing going and went through the uh, window in Johnson's Meat Market. Over the years, Mr. Lobdell had many uh, boys and young men from around town work for him and get a few cents uh, income uh, helping him out. Uh, Seymour Wells uh, used to, uh, in, in the earliest days, uh, be one of Lobdell's uh, workers, and he would take the Prados all the way up to Derby with horse and wagon. Irv Parrott later on, my brother Ray Knapp, uh, was Lobdell's helper for a number of years. And when I was a kid, Steve Moyer, who was in his early teens, uh, was a very good uh, helper for the old man. But he did most of what he did himself. And as I say, in the 70s and, and 80s, he was still hoisting heavy loads and doing lots of heavy work. It really was the end of an era, uh, but it was a marvelous training job uh, for a young man uh, going on into life and certainly uh, gave us skills that we could get in no other way. Side B of this tape gives a more detailed description of things that I do remember. Uh, the addenda there uh, cover a, a series of objects in greater detail. This is side B on a tape describing Lobdell's farm. Uh, this side uh, is an addenda to side A and gives uh, additional information on a series of subjects <coughs> that were discussed on side A. The insides of the barn and the shop. Uh, I remember the barn itself is having one large sliding opening on the uh, east side. That's the side toward the driveway and the house. The uh, main part of the barn also had a sliding door on the north side, which was adjacent to the lane or Mount Pleasant Avenue. But in my lifetime, I don't believe that sliding door was ever opened. It may even have been sealed shut. The barn had one window on the east side and two on the south, so that the morning sun came, it did come pouring into that room. In the winter time, there were a series of marvelous smells uh, in the uh, room. It had a bench along the south side, a workbench, and then uh, to the west of that, uh, there were a series of barrels that contained uh, uh, food for chickens and horse. The uh, floor of the barn would sometimes be piled up with fertilizer, but in the wintertime it was just as likely to contain uh, burlap bags full of uh, turnips and uh, baskets of apples. The russets, uh, which uh, in the, at that time uh, s still, uh, s still grew on uh, some apple trees, uh, were stored there, and although they weren't uh, very nice-appearing apples, they were usually rusty and a little bumpy and all that kind of thing, they were the most marvelous-smelling uh, apple there was, 
and by the time February came around they were absolutely delicious flavors. On the east wall uh, next to the sliding door was a drill press and this drill press was operated by cranking a wheel with one hand uh, while with the other hand you levered the uh, drill bit down into what it was that you were drilling and that was mounted on the wall. There were no power tools at all and uh, there was very little lighting in the barn. There were a few electric lights in the ceiling that you pulled with a cord. The barrels that I was talking about contained supplementary uh, food. There was a barrel of molasses uh, for uh, the horse and he got that and he got malt and oats and things like that to supplement his uh, uh, general feed. Uh, the horse was also very fond of apples and uh, would take them uh, uh, from your hand if you held the hand flat. You had to remember to leave the hand flat because uh, he didn't realize uh, that he could bite your fingers off. The shop itself covered about half the area of the building that we call the shop, the other half being the area where the uh, truck and the uh, wagon were kept. The um, truck got used for picking up vegetables uh, uh, throughout the farm and then for uh, taking them to market. The markets originally were quite extensive. Mr. Lobdell drove over to Bridgeport and uh, drove up to uh, Shelton and Derby to uh, sell vegetables. As I mentioned earlier, in the early days Seymour Wells did some of this for him. Uh, as time went on, the distribution of Lobdell's uh, vegetables became more limited. Uh, he certainly served the stores in the Stratford Center. Uh, Kelman's were uh, customers of his and before that Johnson's and uh, Newton Reed's. At the Green his customers included uh, Carl Helbig's stores and of course uh, that of uh, uh, Vic. Uh, Vic's was just about purely a vegetable market. As the 1923 truck aged he did have more and more difficulties with it. The uh, Model T was a very simple machine but it did have its foibles and its problems. Uh, clutches and bearings and things of that sort often went. I remember in the late 40s uh, Mr. Lobdell, in the late 30s rather, Mr. Lobdell uh, saying I'll never do business with Henry Ford again because he couldn't get some parts from Sears and Roebuck and he never did. The interior of the shop uh, I mentioned earlier also had its uh, bench and uh, some of the celery cutting in the uh, winter time used to have been done in there but he took to doing it outside because it was easier uh, in the later years. Uh, part of that uh, shop room had uh, a uh, chicken wiring across it and there was a chicken coop inside where I guess laying hens were kept. It was in there that the uh, ladder went through a hole in the floor uh, up to the uh, garret or loft above. Uh, in that loft were all sorts of marvelous pieces of, of equipment, ancient equipment and harness and things of that sort and there was the sleigh. I remember the first time I found the sleigh uh, there were chicken eggs in the seat. I don't know how long they'd uh, been there, 
but uh, you had to be a little careful when you moved around up there for fear that uh, you'd, you would be crushing rotten eggs. Corn shocks. I mentioned that the interior of the uh, uh, barn, uh, uh, part of it was uh, reserved for uh, corn stalks for the cattle. Uh, what was done when a uh, cornfield was uh, completely uh, picked, uh, the corn was allowed to, the stalks rather, were allowed to stand for a while, and then you would come through with uh, corn cutters. Uh, these had a kind of curved blade and usually a handmade uh, two foot long. Uh, handle. You uh, grabbed the uh, corn stalk with uh, one hand and whacked away at uh, its base with this uh, sharpened uh, corn cutter and then took it over to put it on the corn shocks. Uh, in the uh, fields, uh, every uh, 60 feet or so, uh, you would take two stalks of corn and bind them together to serve as a base and then upon that uh, you would lay uh, vertical uh, corn stalks and as you built this thing up it became the kind of corn shock that you see in the fields and old paintings in, in Vermont. They might be uh, three feet in diameter and stood there until needed. When it was time to uh, take them down to the barn, and this was done usually before the uh, coldest of weather, but when it was time to take them down to the barn, uh, Mr. Lobdell would often come up to our house and uh, get our collie dog, Sport. Our beagles were good rabbiters, but Sport was the best ratter in the world. And of course these uh, shocks in the uh, autumn as the weather got colder were ideal places for uh, rats to live because there were still uh, ear ears of corn, dried ears of corn, on some of the stalks and so the rats had uh, not only their uh, food but their houses available for them and when you took the shocks apart they dashed all over the place. Sport would go charging after them and uh, Mr. Lobdell would get rid of some of his vermin. Organic fertilizer. I mentioned earlier on uh, using uh, fresh uh, horse manure in the hotbeds, but manure was spread uh, all across the uh, uh, fields uh, prior with the dump cart prior uh, to uh, planting, prior to plowing really. The, manure, the best manure, that, that was the most nutrient in it, usually was the cow manure, it was about three or four times as good as the horse manure, but you used what you had and uh, supplemented it with the uh, uh, chemical fertilizer. Chemical fertilizer really was about four to five times as strong as manure, but the um, the, the uh, natural fertilizer had uh, lots of elements to allow the uh, soil to uh, uh, build up. It, it, they made for uh, good uh, mulch uh, and good uh, loam as uh, time went on. He used not only uh, his own animals, manure, but uh, he did go out and, and find it in uh, other places. Uh, Raymond describes uh, going down to the center to uh, Johnson's store to pick up manure, and Johnson's wouldn't uh, telephone Mr. Lobdell until 
they had an absolutely huge load and the uh, load was in the shed behind the uh, store. The store stood on the uh, west side of Stratford Center, about where the turnpike is now. And what Ray described going down there and finding uh, that they had filled the shed practically up to the roof. So he was sent up to the top of this uh, uh, pile and had to lie on his side just below the roof and push it down till he got to the point where he could stand. The the uh, horse and wagon then brought the uh, manure home to the farm. Uh, Ray remembers sometime in the very early 20s going over to the uh, circus grounds on State Street and Bridgeport and bringing home loads of uh, elephant manure. Uh, anywhere you could get this organic fertilizer, you did, and it was useful and saved you from having to buy the uh, commercial fertilizers. Controlling Chubby, uh, I started to mention earlier on that uh, uh, Chubby was a person in his own right, uh, had his own mind about things. He was very obedient to, uh, to Mr. Lobdell. He took commands very well and uh, sounded like a well-educated horse. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Lobdell's commands early when he first got chubby were yaw for get along or get app and whoa for uh, whoa. Uh, as time went on, I would hear him saying uh, to the horse to make him move forward, commence. The horse had some contempt for me and uh, didn't pay very much attention to my commands. Uh, Lobdell tried to teach me to uh, uh, control the animal, but I was never very good at it. He would more or less respond when he wanted to. I do remember one time being up in the uh, southwest field and uh, we had the truck up there, and Mr. Lobdell drove back on the truck, told me to bring the horse and wagon down. We no longer had cows at uh, this time, so the uh, gate between the pasture and uh, the lane was left open. I had, the wagon was already headed toward the barn, and Chubby always did uh, uh, operate a little more rapidly when he was heading toward the barn than when he was heading away from it. Uh, so I uh, clicked the reins on his uh, back lightly and he started. As he went down through the uh, uh, pasture, uh, he gathered speed and where we were supposed to cross the brook on the bridge, we did that uh, uh, one wheel on the bridge, one wheel uh, through the uh, pool uh, trick and uh, he himself headed uh, for the gate to the lane or get it headed for the opening uh, to the lane. I didn't have to do much more after that. By this time he was trotting at a fair pace and paid no attention to my attempt to get him around the corner into the lane and I do know that the wheels on the right side went up over the stone wall and over a stump. I thought the whole thing was going to flip over. It came crashing down into the lane and he galloped down to the barn and stopped at the door. Well, the old man never knew that uh, uh, this had happened. I inspected everything carefully, and by some miracle, nothing was broken. But I really never was able to control the horse. In <clears throat> using him for plowing, 
uh, I would uh, strap the reins uh, were tied together and went around behind you so that you wouldn't lose them completely uh, but you had to use your hands for uh, several things and, and the uh, one hand was kept on each of the two uh, plow handles uh, so as to uh, steer it and, and you did have to steer it uh, to uh, some extent to make sure that the straightness of the furrow and the width of the furrow uh, remain proper. Uh, you also had to uh, steer the horse uh, using the reins unless you had somebody else uh, uh, up at his uh, bit uh, steering him along. But if you were by yourself uh, you, you had to control the horse and the plow uh, both with your hands at the same time. The uh, other thing to watch out for was as with the mowing machine hitting a rock. If you hit the ro a rock with the plow point, the uh, plow tried to turn turtle and suddenly the uh, uh, handles uh, came right, came straight up and the cross piece uh, between the two handles of the plow caught you in the gut. So you had to watch out for all of that. Uh, plowing is not as easy as it looks. To show his contempt for me, I'm, I'm quite sure that on some days Chubby was deliberately flatulent. Traces of Indians. According to uh, uh, Franz Goldbach, uh, there actually was a little Indian village or uh, settlement uh, on Lobdell's farm where the uh, brook came into the farm, crossed the lane and, and came into the farm. Uh, and where uh, he had built this well that I was telling you about. the uh, I don't know how uh, Franz acquired this information uh, because we never found any uh, traces of Indians at that particular point. And Mr. Lobdell never uh, mentioned them. However, it was a warm, sunny spot uh, with uh, good water supply and things of that short, sort and it might very well have been the uh, uh, place where Indians would set up teepees. I do know that after plowing in the springtime, the uh, spring rains would uncover glistening stones that had been uh, turned up by the plow, and when you picked them up you found that they were in fact arrowheads. Uh, he had a uh, quart jar down in the barn that was just plumb full of arrowheads that he had picked up over the years while plowing. The log cabin. Uh, as you uh, proceed west from the intersection of Huntington Road and Mount Pleasant Avenue, on your left, up a, uh, no, on your right, up a uh, uh, small hill is an older house that at this point is, is uh, kind of... Uh, packaged in or stuck between a, a, a couple of ranch houses. Uh, when I was a boy this was all woods and from the lane a driveway led between two uh, stone uh, pillars with uh, planting pots on top of them. A driveway led up into the woods and uh, turned to a fairly large uh, building that had been built by an artist lady named Mrs. Hansen in the early 1900s. That place is a log cabin. Uh, it's still there. Uh, today uh, it's, it has been uh, covered 
with uh, 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 materials so that you can no longer see the logs, but it is in fact built of logs and uh, the logs were exposed uh, when uh, we were a boy and this is what I referred to as the log cabin. The well at the house uh, in the corner of the backyard of the house between the house and the uh, driveway that led into the barnyard uh, stood uh, the well. This, this well never did in my memory go dry. Uh, it uh, was encased with a pair of uh, culvert sections in the upper part and then below that uh, standard stone uh, lining went down to the base of the well. It, it was roofed over and had a, uh, a uh, pulley that at one time had, had had a bucket hanging on each side of it so that when one bucket was up the other one was down. Uh, one of the buckets had long since rotted out and one end of the uh, bucket line was tied and the other bucket usually was kept down in the well and this way it remained uh, uh, swollen and was able to uh, take water when you drew it up. Uh, when you drew it up there was a uh, two or three foot uh, trough that you could dump the water into and then it went to a tub just outside of the well. That tub was kept fairly well uh, filled because this was a place where the uh, a horse was allowed to uh, drink when he was brought back from uh, work in the fields and it was also a place where the uh, metal uh, milk cans were kept to be picked up by Mr. Wilcoxon or whomever. We for a period of time bought milk from uh, Mr. Lobdell. Uh, it was less expensive than uh, the delivered milk although I had to go get it ourselves. And it's about a 10 minute walk from the house down to uh, his farm uh, we would buy uh, three quarts of milk at eight cents a quart. However, in the summertime, uh, our uh, container, I had to carry these uh, metal containers back up home, uh, and, but the uh, uh, container, in, instead of uh, uh, three quarts, uh, would often have uh, six, seven or quarts in it in the summertime. And of course, it was a very rich, heavy, raw milk. It was wonderful stuff. In the wintertime, uh, it was usually down to the minimum and you'd get your three quarts. And I really hated to go down uh, each morning and uh, pick up our milk. I hated to spend the, 20, the 10 minutes going down in the ice and snow and uh, bringing it back. But as I look back on it, it was pretty darn nutritious and pretty economical uh, in this depression time. Trees. The farm was uh, pretty open. There weren't many trees. There were uh, some that had been planted. I mentioned the orchard which uh, stood in the pasture behind the barn. There were a couple of awfully good uh, Baldwin trees uh, at the end of the uh, field uh, that we called the uh, flats and those trees may still be there. Uh, Baldwin's last for a good long time and they had very good apples. Uh, peach trees were uh, planted along the uh, south edge of the flats uh, behind the houses that were later built on uh, Ulrich Road. On the north side of the flats between it and the pasture was an, an ancient cherry tree of a of a type that uh, you don't see anymore. 
the cherries were not large, but the pits were, but they were absolutely sweet and succulent. With the coming of uh, later cher cherries like Bing and Oxheart, uh, this kind of cherry tree, I'm sure, has been phased out. But they were ab absolutely uh, delicious, and it was a huge tree, and never seemed to have any uh, problem with bearing a, a large crop every year. I remember very close to that cherry tree was a uh, depression in the ground that was about six feet square and that is where one of the previous horses had uh, been buried. That was a grave of one of the plow horses and uh, the remains of that horse may still be there. Other trees were the uh, nut trees uh, near the uh, uh, hillside field that I mentioned. Uh, <clears throat> to the north of that was a nut tree and that was usually the tree that we uh, cut the branches off to uh, make wooden farm implements. Uh, between that and the southwest field was another nut tree and along the uh, east uh, stone wall of the uh, southwest field were a series of nut trees, some on Lobdell's side of the stone wall, some on the Strasburger and Mills sides of, uh, of the stone wall. Between the Monroe Street field and the uh, meadow was a large pepperidge tree. Uh, pepperidge doesn't have much use except for firewood and uh, even in that case you really have to cut the tree and split it in the uh, cold of February to get it to split at all uh, but it does make magnificent firewood. That pepperidge tree was never cut and again uh, you can see it forming the uh, rear border of uh, Shepherd Street properties and uh, uh, Mount Pleasant properties. That tree is in place. Another uh, locator tree that I remember was uh, in the pasture on the way up to the meadow stood a, a single cedar. It was a large cedar. There weren't many cedars on the property. What are the uh, uh, cows trampled them or what? I don't know, but there, there was this, this one large cedar uh, whose remains can be seen as a stump alongside the rear porch of the house that it's at the southwest intersection of uh, Shepherd and Lobdell. Where things were, the uh, farm as I described it uh, 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 much earlier was a 15 acre farm. Uh, if you tried to locate parts of it uh, using uh, uh, present day uh, features of, of the land, uh, I might say that the upper part of uh, Shepherd Street, the, uh, from the intersection of Shepherd and Monroe, around the corner and down the hill to Lobdell Drive, uh, is located in uh, what had been uh, the pasture and the uh, Monroe Street field. The uh, westernmost end of uh, Ulrich Drive is located in uh, what had been the pasture. The, uh, practically all of the north-south part of Lobdell Drive uh, stood uh, within Lobdell's farm. Its intersection with uh, Mount uh, Pleasant is where the is where the uh, Indian village may have stood and uh, where the uh, well was and where the 
little bridge that crossed the uh, field was where Jimmy the Frog lived. Uh, beyond that, as it uh, proceeds uh, south, uh, it passes through what was the hillside field and then passes uh, through the very middle of what was the southwest field. Uh, Lobdell Drive then turns a corner and goes east, but all of that was not on Lobdell's property. That was on property that had been Tom Dew's. The lane that went uh, west uh, from the brook up to uh, Shepherd Street really was along a line which would be today an extension of Monroe Street. Uh, in other words, it was uh, somewhat south of where the present Shepherd Street goes uh, east and west. Uh, it would, would be a direct extension of, of uh, Monroe Street. The uh, stump that I mentioned uh, earlier would have been e uh, north of that lane through the fields. The uh, lane would have been considerably south of that stump. And down on uh, Huntington Road, uh, between Lobdell's house and Bryling's house, uh, were the uh, hotbeds uh, and the uh, celery patch. The celery patch was almost exactly where the synagogue stands today. This, in essence, is the description of a farm, one of the last truck farms uh, in town uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, as I remember it. Lunap.